0: Well, I've been very thrilled with uh, how this retreat has begun. I remember the other night when we said about uh, the particular zeal with which we hope we would all approach this wonderful opportunity of two weeks of practice. And uh, James spoke last night again about intention and practice. And when everybody came for their interview yesterday and. I asked everybody that I saw, and I know everybody else did as well, what's your intention? What are you hoping for? And people said a wide range of things, but uh, many people said in one way or another, I want to see things in a new way. So I thought I would talk about seeing things in a new way. I want to remind us all that uh, vipassana, which is the Pali word for the practice that we're doing means seeing things clearly, and uh, I like that very much. I thought about uh, we might call this uh, seeing clearly practice. Uh, mindfulness is actually an English translation of a Pali term, and uh, sometimes I think it's a little misleading. When I tell people I teach mindfulness, they say, mindful of what? And uh, I thought when you meditate, your mind is supposed to be empty. And then I have to start with it's not empty or full. It has to do with a quality of attentiveness. I think it has to do most with a quality of clarity that leads us to act wisely. I think we'll use those words a lot as we teach. And either discover something new that's very helpful to us or remember something that we already knew, that we've forgotten to connect with. So I I remembered a story that happened to me just a few weeks ago. I was flying to Barry on an airplane. And I told it to my friends in Barry when I got there, and they said, that's a great story. It's a wonderful meditation story. Why don't you tell it? And I said, well, I have a little hesitation about it. And it came up in my mind today as I thought about talking tonight. And I thought, I'll just tell a story and then I'll tell you my hesitation about it. You'll guess as I go along perhaps what my hesitation might have been. So anyway, I got on an airplane to fly to Boston. And uh, sometimes it's my habit to talk to people on airplanes, I'm interested in them. On this particular evening though, I really, I had stuff to read and I wanted to sleep and uh, I was hopeful for a quiet trip. and there was an empty space between myself and the person next to me, and I thought, "Oh, good." And the person got on, and really wanted to have a conversation, and uh, I could tell right away as he—I t- looked at him. He's a nice-looking man, maybe ten years y- younger than I, and uh, I, I had a notion of, from the way that he looked that he might be. Indian and when he uh, spoke I could tell he was speaking English with that kind of Indian lilt that my friend Jack does much better than I do so I won't attempt it. But um, anyway, he, uh, he asked me all the questions that I would normally ask other people like, do you live here or are you going to work or are you going on a holiday and you've been working? He asked me those very questions. So I said, well, actually, I live here, but I'm going to work. And he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I teach. And he said, what do you teach? I said, I teach meditation. And and, uh, meantime, he'd taken out his computer, and he'd wear a suit and a tie and a computer. And he said, ah, he said, meditation. I love meditation. It saved my life, meditation. And then he went into a great long story and told me his whole personal odyssey about I came here from India 30 years ago to go to graduate school and then I did this and that. And really it was such an impassioned story, amazingly unsolicited and quite candid about how he'd would gone to graduate school and gotten a wonderful job and had a whole uh, business that he'd started and how his business was thriving and how he'd married and had a family and his family was thriving, and how um, six years ago his whole world, in various ways that he was quite candid about, just fell apart. His marriage fell apart and his family fell apart and his business became um, upset because of it. And How really personally distressed, by the way at some point when, after he told me the story, just to reassure you, I said, that's a marvelous story. I'll tell it sometime if you I mean because it'll be helpful to people maybe, but I won't tell your name. He said, no, you could tell my name, really. And went on to say how upset he had been and how his health had really failed in some significant way and his whole <coughs> emotional health had fa- fallen apart so significantly that at some point he was um, briefly hospitalized and was being evaluated for some quite significant therapy program. And he said, suddenly, he said, as I realized that all this planning was happening and all these people were planning about how I could get better and what I should do and what I should take for it, he said, I suddenly thought to myself, wait a minute. I've been overwhelmed. I haven't been thinking clearly. I could probably do this better. And then he said, you know, I remembered when I was a child in India, my family was very religious. He said, my father was a professional person, my mother was an educated person, but we were a very religious family, and we often sat quietly together. I remembered, I could meditate. He said, this changed my life. I decided I'll do it another way." And he went on for the whole rest of the trip to tell me about how he had done it a different way, and what he'd done. And he said, my health is much better than it's ever been, and I moved out here, and I made a new life, and all the ways in which... And he said, uh, if you want, I'll come to your class and talk about it for you. And I said, no, no, that's all right. They actually, they actually get it about it." He said, here's my card. Uh, I'd love to come and tell people about it.
1: <laughs> so uh,
0: I, I was really quite wonderful. I mean, his candor was wonderful and his enthusiasm for practice was wonderful. And I loved it that he was Indian. It seemed just really to make the connection with uh, our connection to Buddhism and to Siddhartha Gautama who also said, look, you can do it a different way, you could have another idea. So I got to Barry and I told my friends that story and they said, that's a great story, why don't you tell it? I said, well, I'm a little hesitant to tell it because it's a miracle story. It's about somebody who's in a very, very dire place and said, I could do it another way and just did. And for most of us, in between the resolve and the fruition of the resolve, is a longer period of time. And so I hesitate to tell a miracle story like that. Many of you know that um, I wrote a book called It's Easier Than You Think, The Buddhist Way to Happiness. I'm, I wouldn't wonder how to tell this uh, without I wrote every single word of that book myself except the title. Um, Titles are often written by publishing companies and uh, people who know a lot about marketing. And the title, It's Easier Than You Think, was a joint and corporate decision by people other than me, and um, so that's what it is. It wasn't the title that I submitted, and the title that I submitted was, I Changed My Mind. (laughs) (laughs) You see, you all think that's really, you get it. (laughs) You get it. I get it. When I tell people that, the people that I tell mostly get it. (laughs) It's important because I did change my mind. I didn't do it overnight. I did it over time. Truth is, it wasn't that easy.
1: But the people who decided
0: on the titles decided that it was too obscure and that nobody would get it and that when people said... um, uh, what's your book? And you said, I changed my mind. That would confuse them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, as a matter
0: of fact, shortly after that book was published, I was teaching with a friend of mine. And uh, normally when we teach together, it goes very well. And uh, on this particular occasion, for various reasons, it wasn't going very well. And uh, so on the second day, I said to him, you know what? It's harder than you think and on the third day he said to me you know what it's more difficult than I would have imagined I said we were hypothesizing that these might be sequels to the book and on the the next day I said you know maybe we could write a book called Forget About It we decided that We both had much more faith than that. So what I want to tell you is I hesitate about that miracle story because it's a miracle story. On the other hand, I have a great deal of faith that over time we can all of us change our minds and be happier. And so I want to talk about the way on many levels that we get to change our minds. It's hard to change your mind about anything. I... uh, watched a mini-experiment in mind-changing happening um, about, uh, oh, it was a year ago, October, so it's about 13 months ago, I remember. It was a, a, a night when several of my grandchildren spent their night at my house up in Geyserville. And I was up early morning, pre-dawn, uh, with uh, the sky getting light because uh, two of my grandchildren had gotten up. And so Grace, who was then uh, four and a half, was up, and Eric, who was six, they are first cousins. And we were sitting together and watching the sky getting light. And uh, Grace was, they both looking out. And Grace, who uh, speaks quite well, but hadn't quite gotten her R's right by that time, wasn't saying them quite right yet, was watching the sun get lighter and lighter and she announced in really firm kind of stentorian tones, she said, the sun is getting witty to wise. And Eric looked at her from his six-year-old level and he said, Grace, the sun doesn't rise. It stays right where it is all the time. The earth goes round and round and round. And I said, Eric, that's amazing. Did you learn that in school or did you figure that out all by yourself? He said, I figured it out all by myself. <laughs> well, I'm sure he didn't figure I'm pretty sure he didn't figure it all out by himself. But the thing was, I looked at Grace right away because I was concerned that she might feel put down by his immediate dismissal of her four-year-old knowledge. But... Grace knows that Eric loves her and she loves him and he's wise because he's six and I could see her little face looking at him and looking out at the imminent sunrise and looking at him and looking at the sunrise and I could feel her little wheels turning trying to figure out Eric's wisdom about the earth, the sun stays right where it is and the earth goes round and round and round. And I began to think then of that as a kind of a paradigm event for how we incorporate new knowledge. How is the mind open and relaxed and safe enough to be challenged with new knowledge? Because that's actually what we do here in a retreat. We make the conditions that are appropriate for new revelation to arise on all levels of our experience for us to be able to recognize it, see it, tell the truth, and somehow integrate it into our experience. The key line that the man on the plane said to me, that I remembered afterwards, when he said, I remembered at that point what I had known before, he said, but until that moment I hadn't remembered because I had been overwhelmed. By what had what gone on with me. I think we are often overwhelmed with what's going on with us. And I think that the conditions of a retreat are specifically designed to underwhelm. Nothing very much happens here. And it gives a space for the mind to relax, it's not battered with experience relax a little bit and really take stock and remember what it knows or learn something that it didn't know. I've been thinking about stories I know about how hard it is to change a point of view. It's called attachment to view in a Buddhist way of talking about it. I have a certain view of things. But going back to the way that people articulated their wish yesterday, they said, I want to see things in a new way. I want to see things in a larger way. I want to have a bigger perspective. I was thinking about all the ways in which we get confused in our view. Someone told me a funny story recently. It's an example, though, about attachments we have to views. It's a story about... uh, mythical story about a mythical place. The place is a city in Poland uh, called Helm. Actually there is a city in Poland right. called Helm but the people there are regular folks just like any other place. But the folklore is that the people in Helm, Helm manage to take every piece of information that they get and see it in the least wise way that they don't put it together in the clearest way. So there's a whole story. People will meet each other and say, did you hear the story about the person from Chelm? So this is a story about two people in Chelm, two men who meet each other on the street. And one says to the other, "Uh, Isaac, I'm so excited to see you. I haven't seen you in so long. It's wonderful to see you, Isaac. But Isaac, What happened to you? You don't look at all good when I saw you the last time. You stood up so nice and strong and you were so vigorous, and now you're all bent over? And Isaac, he said, the last time I saw you, you had this enormous head of hair and so luxurious, and now you're bald. What happened to you, Isaac? And you had this great mustache, it came down and it curled up and it was so luxurious, and now your lip is all clean-shaven, there's nothing there? What happened to you, Isaac? And the other person says, "I'm not Isaac." And the first person says, "You changed your name also?"
1: <laughs> so,
0: it's very hard <laughs> to let go of of you if we have it. So I'll tell you another story about hard to change a view because that's a mythical story, but there's a real story about hard there's a real story about how hard it is to change a view. A friend of mine is a psychoanalyst in London, and he told me some years ago about a friend of his who was the headmaster of a um, middle school in uh in a very um uh difficult neighborhood in London. There was a great deal of crime and a lot of very difficult family problems, probably lots of poverty. That um, he was concerned about um, a particular problem that the seventh and eighth grade civics teacher had brought to him as the headmaster. And the problem was that he was teaching civics and uh, teaching about... um, the different aspects of government and hoping to inspire some of these young people to really think about uh, the culture that they lived in and the opportunities that they had to live perhaps uh, to study and to get to live in a better way. And so at one point uh, the social studies teacher had come to the headmaster and said, what should I do? And then the headmaster came to my friend social studies teacher had asked these 7th and 8th graders, actually this is a boys school, to um, write an essay on the police. So they wrote different essays about the police. And for the most part, they were not complimentary about the police. They had uh, things to say, the police are always after you, the police will uh, come after you for no reason police are on the lookout for, uh, to, just to get you into trouble. There are all kinds of not good things to say about the police. And uh, one boy wrote the shortest essay of all. He wrote a four-word essay. His essay was, The Police Are Bastards. Headmaster was upset to hear this in social studies. He came to my friend, the psychoanalyst. What should we do? psychoanalysts said well really the pieces that these boys don't understand having grown up in the situation that they do they don't really connect with the police as people what you should do is ask the police to invite them to the police station and have a party at the police station have soda pop and cookies the police should bring their families to the police station, bring their wives and their children and they did that And they talked to them, the police took them around the police station, and they explained to them about how the police take care of all the kinds of problems in the community. They let them sit in the police car, they let them turn on the lights and flash the sirens. They talked to the families, they all had the soda pop and the cookies. They went back, They also the police told them about how difficult it was to do their jobs. how frightened they sometimes were on their jobs. Boys went back, they wrote another essay. Second essay was a very big improvement on the first essay, the, really. Most of the boys now wrote, I didn't realize that the police are people that with families and that being a policeman is a hard job. Police have families, the police are looking out for us. Some people really changed their minds the boy of the four-word essay now wrote a five-word essay. His essay was The Police Are Clever Bastards. (laughs) (laughs) So this is not about Helm. This is about true story. It's very hard to change a view. So I've been thinking and thinking, it's been a major piece of my thinking recently about what has to happen for us to change our views. So here's another story. They get uh, they are graded in order of getting better, these stories. There's a story I heard uh, just two weeks ago from a friend of mine back east, who's a physics professor in a university, who said uh, one of his students came to him recently and said, uh, Uh, I'm really hesitating to talk to you about this, I'm embarrassed to bring it up, but um, I have to do it because I admire you very much, and I'm graduating this year, I'm thinking of doing graduate work in physics, and I'd really like particularly to work with you. And yet, in this senior seminar that I'm in with you, I often have the feeling when I'm sharing something or telling something, that you're impatient with me. I have a feeling that even though you're not saying it, I have the sense in how you are that you'd like me to pick up the pace. And sometimes when you do say something about what I'm saying, I have the sense that you'd like me to pick up the pace. And I feel that you're not really interested in what I have to say. And so if that's true, I need to know because I need to make plans. Besides, I feel badly because I really like to study with you. Mm -hmm. And my friend who told me the story said he felt really badly because he liked this person a lot. And he thought that um, he was a gifted student and he really wanted for him to stay on and study with him. And uh, so first of all, he said you know that's not my experience I really think you have a lot of potential and certainly glad that you brought this up with me and I'll give it some thought and I'll think it over but please first of all he apologized but I was and I was very impressed that he didn't just apologize and say I was having a bad day he said I'm really sorry I think you're a good student and I'll look at that in myself Mm -hmm. and then as he went on to tell me the story he said I then thought about it Uh, do I really do that I said, what's going on in my mind as I'm leading that seminar? People are supposed to share in a seminar. And he said, I realize that even though it's a seminar and people are supposed to share, I come with a certain agenda. I'm really wanting to give out a certain amount of information. And I'm really aware of the clock. And I really feel like I need to teach. And I'm really thinking So often, pick up the pace, pick up the pace, when people are talking because I'm afraid I won't be able to teach everything that I want to teach and what's more he said I also know who talks long and who talks short of these students and some of them who have some very good things to say take a long time to say it so even before they've started to talk as soon as they put their hand up I'm thinking pick up the pace and they haven't even started yet he said, So I thought about it and I realized that's really I, I really do have that and then he said, I thought about it further and I realized that in faculty meetings I'm always thinking, pick up the pace, pick up the pace. So he told me that he had had a further discussion with that student and that he had gone as far as to say to that student, you know, I've looked at my own process and I, I see that it's a mind habit that I have that uh, I hadn't been aware of. So I'm really glad for our interchange because you point helped me Discovered in myself, and uh, please be assured, it has, if I do that, which I'll try not to in the future, it's nothing to do with you. So that was the end of that story with the student. But I and, and I was very impressed with the story, and I said, and "This is a piece where I really learned from it." I said to him, "Did you think at all, also, about how it came to be that you have that?" piece of equipment in you. You know, what about you? What about your childhood might be causing you to be thinking all the time, pick up the pace, pick up the pace, have this time pressure? And he said, no, he said, because it doesn't matter why it got there. What matters is that it's not helpful, and it's not wholesome, and I just plan not to do it anymore. I was really very impressed with that because one of the reasons that one of the things that stands between us and changing our mind or allowing in a new perspective is it's very hard to see the truth about ourselves and take responsibility for it. There's a cartoon, actually, I've been carrying it around, it's a Jules Pfeiffer cartoon. It's got six pictures in it, six frames, You see somebody lying on an analyst's couch. In the first frame, the person says, all my life I've blamed my mother when I couldn't hold a girl or keep a job. And the second one says, my mother, I cursed her put-downs, her neglect, her undermining my hopes and dreams. Then this new book comes out. You may have seen it, by the way, there has been a new book recently with scientific proof that our parents don't have much effect on how we turn out. It's our peers. The kids we hang out with, they determine our future. Can you believe it? It wasn't my mother who ruined my life. It was Freddie Abramowitz. (laughs) It is extremely hard to take responsibility for the contents of our own mind and heart. When Gil said at the end of that last sitting, as we do metta and the heart softens, you're quite likely to see what's in there. That's a, that's a very serious statement. We see everything about ourselves. And to take responsibility for it is sometimes really difficult. A friend of mine, actually a woman that I met recently teaching back east, become a friend, told me that uh, she was at uh, some sort of a weekend group process with her teaching team. They had a facilitator. And after they'd spent some days together and some meals together, the facilitator at that workshop said to her, I notice you don't eat any cooked vegetables. Why is that? And she said, uh, when I was a child, my mother obliged me to eat cooked vegetables. And the facilitator thought about it for a while. Then she said, that was a long time ago. (laughs) What I want to talk about is habits of the mind and how hard it is to change them. There's one line, there are three lines actually, I'm going to tell you one of them tonight. Out of the movie Kundun, which I hope you saw when it was on the big screen, otherwise rent it and see it on a little screen. Story of the life of this current Dalai Lama. There's one line that I very, very much to to heart, loved. The young Dalai Lama, having been recognized as the new Dalai Lama, has gone been moved to the monastery and is being taught by tutors. And uh, you see a scene where he's reciting his lessons. And he says the first noble truth of suffering. And, uh, and then he says the second, the cause of suffering is clinging. And his tutors stop him. And they say, wait a minute, too much pride. And he stops. And I'm thinking in that moment, does that mean too much pride?" And he puts his head down in a gesture that I thought, I thought at first meant, oh, he hadn't been humble enough in saying these truths. But really that's off. The, what I, I decided is that gesture of putting his head down was really looking at what's the second truth. And then he said, in this little baby-shaped body, The a small person voice. There's one line, there are three lines actually, I'm going to tell you one of them tonight, out of the movie Kundun, which I hope you saw when it was on the big screen. Otherwise, rent it and see it on the little screen. story of the life of this current Dalai Lama. There's one line that I very, very much took to heart, loved. The young Dalai Lama, having been recognized as the new Dalai Lama, has gone been moved to the monastery and is being taught by tutors. And uh, you see a scene where he's reciting his lessons, and he says the first noble truth of suffering, and uh, and then he says the second, the cause of suffering is clinging, and his tutors stop him, and they say, wait a minute, too much pride. And he stops, and I'm thinking in that moment, does that mean too much pride? And he puts his head down in a gesture that I thought, I thought at first meant, oh, he hadn't been humble enough in saying these truths. But really that's off. The, what I, I decided is that gesture of putting his head down was really looking at what's the second truth. And then he said, in this little baby-shaped body, in a small person voice, he said, I am the cause of most of the suffering most of my own suffering as a result of the habits of my own mind. It's because it's quite amazing. This is just a little actor who's learned somebody else's lines. But assuming that that's the insight of Dalai Lama and the young, because it's the truth for all of us. We're not responsible for the pain of our lives, what befalls us in terms of the events largely, since everything is caused by everything and karma is vast, very much of my suffering is caused by the habits of my mind. And people have been telling me, already on the second day of practice, how they've begun to recognize some of the habits of their mind. And really, How they begin to see the possibility of undoing those habits. Not necessarily amazing undoing, people say, or amazing. Actually, I take that back. Every insight is amazing because we didn't know it before. I'm also sure in my own life that I have had the same insights over and over and over again, been amazed by them, and not have them stick. I'm sure that's true for all of us. I say, oh, this time I so clearly get it how I don't stay in touch with my body and I wait until I'm too tired and then I discover it afterwards. I say, okay, I'm not doing that again, but then I do it again. But I'm hopeful that at some point it's actually happening to me, that I'm beginning to notice it sooner and live more wisely. I don't think it happens miraculously and in a minute. It happens again and again and again. I think it's a gradual awakening. That's Stephen Levine's word for it, and I like that. I would have hoped for an instantaneous and total, but it's clear to me that I'm going to have to make do with gradual. <laughs> so people come to interviews and they say, I see how sleep-deprived I was. That's an insight. didn't realize that. Or I see how this particular crisis in my life that I thought I had handled so well and dealt with with such equanimity, I see how it's still quite alive in a painful way in my heart and that there's um, something I have to look at there. Or I see that this issue that I thought I had worked through psychologically of my some pain of my life near or far I've worked through I haven't it's back again oh. or I see how much air time I give extra air time in my mind to fantasies about lust or long stories about anger how much time I spend worrying about eventualities that are quite beyond my control I remember somebody saying that meditation was one humiliation after another or one insult after another. I don't think that's true. I think it's one revelation after another. People also say, I realize how good food tastes if you slow down and eat it. People also say, I realize it's true that even though my life is in a tremendous stage of upset, there are moments when I sit and I feel quite okay. And I look out the window and it's really beautiful. So if I need to say anything at those points, I say something about the movement from the second noble truth to the third noble truth that we have ha- there are habits of the mind that cause us to struggle and the struggle causes suffering and that it's possible in this very life in this very body right now to be free of it and to be at ease not at some distant time from now but right now in this very breath actually I give that to people often you may have been one of them. As a practice sometime, when people are quite overwhelmed with painful body states, painful mind states, and there's, a, there's a kind of a way in which when we get trapped in the struggle with them, there's kind of no place to stand, or it feels like there's no place to stand. And I say to people, here's a mindfulness practice for you. Particularly notice those moments that are free from distress. We actually are keyed to notice the moments of distress, I think. Actually, I think our nervous systems are more on the lookout for what might be distressful. It's actually a functional nervous system It keeps us alert to taking care of ourselves. It keeps us, I think, a little too alert and we just keep watching out how to fix things up. And we tend not to notice when they're okay. And sometimes even not to notice when they're lovely. So I give people a mindfulness practice. Look for the moments that are free from distress. Having a sip of tea and it really tastes good. Or you look at the lunch and it's really beautiful. Really feel good. Or you taste it. It really tastes good. Just a moment, free of distress. Or you sit here and you take one breath from the beginning to the end and it's free of distress. All you need is one moment and you discover I am free in this moment, the third noble truth, peace is possible in this life, is true. You also notice clearly, you also get to see clearly the first of the three characteristics of experience. Everything passes. Moments of pain pass. Moments of ease pass. Everything passes. Our experience is not a solid block of impenetrable anything. It's all passing experience. When we get to really discover that things really are impermanent, which is a very important new point of view, we get to be able to live a little bit more comfortably in our lives, sometimes a lot more comfortably in our lives. For many years I thought that that was really the insight the only insight that I wanted and the most sustaining one made the most sense to me. I was sure of it in the first that if in the middle of distress I could connect with my absolute trust that everything passes then I could hold my distress more comfortably. Wasn't as frightened of it. Didn't mean that pain stopped being painful. It meant the extra tension or fear or alarm around it didn't have to be there. It has the other side of it, you know, that new idea about everything passes. Sometimes when people really get that new idea, everything does pass. It can be really a little bit frightening. Everything passes actually quite fast. I'm amazed at how fast I got old. It didn't seem like it took a very long time at all. Actually, I feel like, I feel quite young. I look in the mirror, I'm astounded to see that I look like my mother. There are ways in which that very realization about how fast things pass actually causes me to pay a lot more attention to every moment of my life. Not just to sustain the difficult moments, to really enjoy the really wonderful moments and to actually really try to be present for all of the moments. If I wait for the special ones, they won't be enough. They have to all get to be special. That's what we're really hoping to do here. We're hoping to change our mind so that that piece of knowledge, everything passes, holds the mind open to a really spacious place. The piece of knowledge that we are each of us responsible for the suffering in our own life through the, not the pain, but the suffering through the habits of the mind. Then we get to be really dedicated to being alert to those habits. It's an insight, you know, people will say I have the habit of fretting. I have I, I use that as an example because I have a habit. It came with the equipment, who knows why, of making a worry out of things that seem quite neutral to other people. It's just one of the ways that my wine works. Just like my friend who has the habit of saying, Pick up the pace He said it doesn't matter why I have that habit. I just have to not manifest it, it's not wholesome. I have a habit of making a fret out of a lot of things. It's not wholesome. To the degree that I see the habit, I don't have to be victimized by it. Actually, I've gotten a little bit to really... um, I wonder if I'm pushing the point to say it tickles me to see that that habit is still there. I actually wouldn't mind if I suddenly got up and the habit was gone one day, just vanished. (laughs) I kind of like that. But so far, that hasn't completely happened. It's gotten to be much less of a habit because I don't practice it so much. Habits, if you don't practice them, they, don't go, they go away. So I don't practice it very much. But when it's there, it kind of tickles me that I still have that habit. It's, like, it's amazing that the mind comes in a certain kind of a flavor. And like a cookie cutter comes in a certain shape. It doesn't certainly have, suddenly have another shape. It's kind of about the dependability of the mind. Uh, the karma of my situation is that that's the shape of the kind of thoughts that I make. They're familiar to me. It's like there's a lawfulness about things. I hold it in a different way. I think it's all about paying attention, seeing deeply, being able to metabolize, seeing things in a new way. My friend was able to see the truth of how he responds in a kind of peremptory way with people because I think he trusts his own integrity, feels good about himself. He can let in that piece of information. His sense of his own self is secure enough for him to let in that information. His safety is not threatened. I think about safety being perhaps the bottom line of the place that the mind has to rest in for it to let in new information. So that we provide for each other here a supportive community with not a lot of things happening, everyone's needs taken care of as best we can, so that they can relax into every moment and discover that, really, it's safe to do that. We have the capacity of the heart and the mind to look at our truths and to hold them there. We see some things that are difficult and some things that are dismaying, some things that are disarming, some things that are really exalting. I look around and I the the day has been um, and the weather has been so gray. And uh, I look around and I see all of you so steadfastly walking back and forth and showing up for sittings and keeping the space so holy and I think to myself people are so noble. They are so wonderful. Look how everybody is trying so hard. I imagine when I look out at you that uh, if we had those little cartoon bubbles over everybody's head, if we could see the contents of everybody's experience, or worse, hear it, you know, that it, but we don't. You know, you can sit here with the complete trust that whatever is there is not visible or audible to anybody else. I look out at you and everybody looks completely content. And I know whole universes of stories are happening in everybody. But it reconfirms to me the fact that everything that we've heard about the capacity of a spacious heart to hold it all is true. We can do it. Not only can we do it, it's really what we want to do Because it's through that recognition of what inevitably is coming up and working through and going around and around, the habits of our minds that are causing suffering, even though we wish they wouldn't, even though we know better, that causes us really to end up compassionate. And look at our own desire to be content and to be happy and the ways in which we keep stirring it up. Ultimately, we get to be compassionate about ourselves and compassionate about everybody else. I don't think we get to be vicariously or by proxy compassionate. I think we have to do it through our own. I trust that we have to do it through our own experience. And really what I wanted to get to, and which I will just make in time, is to say that I think that the possibility of resting and finding safety in the moment comes from attending with the kind of steadfastness and dedication to the breath that we've been urging you to do, as well as the possibility of waking up to all the truths that one hopes to wake up to. Everything that's true about everything else is true about breath. It comes and goes. The way that it comes and goes can make a whole story for everybody here, just around the breath. Every possible story. I can't find my breath. I get worried about the breath. My, I'm controlling my breath. I see how what, what a controlling person I am. When I'm not in control, I worry. All of our psychology comes up around the breath. We could just stay on the breath forever. Sometimes people come in and they say, I realize that I'm not breathing at all. I'm being breathed. Just sit there. I mean, walking is a volitional behavior. Raising my hand is a volitional behavior. Breathing just happens. It just goes on as a result of conditions. Moment to moment, the biosphere is breathing us. It's very relaxing, by the way, to sit back and remember that. no sense of controlling. There's nothing to control. We are breathed. We can see really clearly the truth of our own lives, our own inner experience, and the truth about life itself just by attending to the breath. So I want to tell you as my last story, just as Grace, who loved Eric a lot, clearly was giving some serious thought to this Piece of new information that Eric gave her. Look at him, look at the sunrise, look at him. The sunrise, it's confrontative. He's challenging her to do something, think in a new way. But she loves him, so she's going to do it. I was remembering a time um, early on in my practice when James was teaching and I came to see him for an interview and I had begun to be able to be somewhat concentrated. I really could feel my breath, and I reported that to him. I said, can really feel my breath right here, just around my nostrils. I could see that he got really excited, and he leaned forward, and he looked at me, kind of like Eric looking at Grace, and he said, I want you to really, really look pay very, very close attention. And he said pretty much the same things that he said this morning when he gave those instructions about how you could pay very close attention. And he was so intent about how I could pay very close attention. And I looked at him and I thought, he's really serious. (laughs) Just like Grace looked at Eric, I thought, he's onto something. <laughs> so I did. So I want to tell you, pay very, very close attention. You don't need to go further than your breath to discover everything about everything. And you can rest in it in a way that makes every moment new and unique and perfectly safe. So let's sit for a minute. May we all continue to be able to see in newer and larger, wiser ways so that our capacity to respond with kindness and compassion to ourselves and through ourselves for our kin and our friends and our community and ultimately for all beings, continue to grow. This talk was given by Silvia Burstyn at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on eleven twenty two ninety eight.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.